Friends, it's a joy to be with you here this morning in the Lord's house. Daryl, the assistant pastor here. Uh, thankful that you're with us. Uh, before we get into a time of opening the word together, uh, we have a favor to ask of you. Um, we're going to put a QR code on the screen and we're going to ask you to scan it. Um, what this is for is we, we are, as your pastor, staff, elders, uh, we're trying to figure out who's with us, like who's here. Uh, we know that in the last six months, um, there has been uh, just an influx, influx of new folks here. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're capturing everybody that's here. And this is going to help us uh, do a couple different things. Uh, we know that we have some space issues. And so this is going to help us uh, as we seek to uh, pray and ask what the Lord might be doing. Um, if, do we need a bigger room? Uh, do we need more chairs? Do we need, um, what do we need uh, from the Lord um, and then how can we best serve you as your pastors? So we're gonna put this up every week. And even if you've scanned it before, we want you to scan it every week. Uh, this just helps us capture uh, who is here with us. Uh, we'll share the results of that with you, but that would, um, that would certainly aid us uh, as we seek what the Lord might be having for us. Um, kind of the first action step that we have aside from, from this code and daydreaming together is uh, we are going to ask you... Um, to come to the five o'clock. Um, our 5 p.m. service um, has room for about 150 folks. Uh, and so we're gonna ask uh, first that about 75 of you would consider doing, uh, coming to the 5 p.m. for about six or seven months. Uh, this, would, um, this would allow some more room in the morning uh, because here's what is kind of happening. Uh, even with our folks who are most devoted, when it gets to about 15 or 10 minutes before the hour, um, people are driving by and, and not coming in uh, because it's too hard to get in. Um, that's a great problem to have. Um, we also know you can go somewhere else, but we don't wanna be that mean. And so uh, we are asking the Lord, what do you want us to do? Um, the only clarity really that we've gotten after I've been on staff for three years, we've prayed about this at every session meeting that I've been here for three years. And I think they've been doing it for four years before that. Um, Lord, what are you wanting us to do for the next 10 or 15 years? And so this is kind of our first step in doing that. So if you could help us do that, that would be great. Uh, we would love you for it. We love you anyway, even if you don't do it, but we'd probably like you a little more if you did. Um, it's always good to start out a sermon with an announcement. So I've lost you. We had a great, we had great singing, now information. Um, but again, thankful, uh, thanks for doing that. Uh, we have been as a church for the last little bit looking through the book of Revelation. Um, Revelation, with all of its uh, weirdness, closes with this twofold hope. The first is that everything is going to be made new. All of creation is going to be renewed. Um, that's our first hope. The second hope is, uh, is actually the greater of those two. And that's that we will be with Jesus. Uh, that we will actually see the actual Jesus face to face. Um, that everything we have pined for, everything we've hoped for, um, that is the hope of every human heart. Um, when we think of heaven, often we think of all the things that it gets us, right? There's no more sickness there. There's no pain. Um, our loved ones who have gone before us, we get to be reunited with them. We don't have to pay taxes anymore. There's all these great benefits. Um, and it's easy to get wrapped up in those and forget that actually the main benefit and the main draw and the most beautiful thing about anything that's ever been made uh, is that Jesus is there. Heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. Um, and so we want to look at Revelation 22 this morning um, and at this blessed hope 
that what, what gets us up in the morning is knowing that we will get to be with Jesus someday. And that Jesus actually wants you to be with him. This is, this is all of scripture. This is a great covenant uh, that kind of sits over top of everything, that God will be our God and that we will be his people. So it is our hope to be with, with Jesus and it is Jesus and, and the Godhead, it's their intention to be with us. That at the end of all this, we will be together, we'll be friends, we will see Jesus and Jesus will see us. And it won't be at a passing glance, uh, it won't be hurried, it won't be a, there won't be a shameful turning away. We will behold the creator of the universe and he will look at us and he won't turn away. And we won't turn away from him in shame. And that's really good news this morning. And because we will see Jesus face to face and neither of us will turn away, we are encouraged as believers and emboldened to persevere in the face of great suffering. So three things we'll look at on this Lord's day. Uh, the face that you've always sought, the face that's always sought you and the fate of your suffering. Um, so let's look at Revelation 22, one through five together. This is the word of the Lord. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb and through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Jesus, I would ask... Um, that you would forgive the sins of the messenger, uh, for they are many. Uh, Lord, I would ask that you would forgive the unbeliever um, that the messenger is. Uh, that, that passages like this are too lofty, Lord, um, for my own heart in the midst of great sadness uh, and sorrow and hurt and pain, it's hard to believe um, that you're there. Uh, so Jesus, will you move my heart? Will you move the heart of my friends here uh, that we would see you more clearly, uh, that would see you as more beautiful and more believable uh, than all the things that are asking for our heart's attention, um, that you would call the prodigal back to yourself, uh, that you would soften the heart of the unbeliever and call them uh, into your family and that you would encourage uh, and embolden and enliven uh, the saints who remain faithful to you. Uh, Jesus, we ask you to do all these things um, that we would leave here rejoicing uh, because we have met with you. It's here in your name we do pray. Amen. Uh, again, we're going to spend most of our time in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, really just on verse 4. Um, and so again, we're going to see three things, the face you've always sought, the face that sought you, and the fate of our suffering. So let's look again at Revelation 22, 1 through 5, and what it has for us this morning. Uh, Revelation 22 is God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, the tour guide, angel of heaven, taking John on his last lap through this vision of heaven. If you remember, if you've been with us for uh, any amount of time, this letter of Revelation started with, as a letter to these seven churches in Asia that were being persecuted by Rome. Um, and there was this letter that was given to them of this vision that was given to John. And he is telling them all these things that he saw when God peeled back the curtain and let him look on the other side of the veil that lies between heaven and earth. And he, and, and we, and he takes us on this trip 
uh, really winding our way through uh, not only starting with the churches, but then through the throne room where we see this lamb and a lion, um, this great paradox that lies at the center of history. There's worship around the throne. There's a vision of all this judgment and all these horses. There's blood, there's dragons, there's babies, there's moms, there's martyrs crying out. And the angel takes John through and down this road and shows him this, where we land in Revelation 22, the last chapter in all of scripture. Um, and he shows him this and this blessed truth that he's wanted us to know. It's what theologians have called the beatific vision that is at the end of all of this, at the end of all things. Everything that is taking place in Revelation has been pieced together to get us to this point where the angel tells John, there's Jesus and you can see him face to face. And John relays that to the church and he says, church, you're gonna run face to face. You're gonna encounter Jesus. You're gonna look him in the face and he's gonna take you by the cheeks. He's gonna wipe tears from your eyes. You're going to be face to face with the Jesus that you love. And that's enough. That's enough to get you through the suffering. That's enough for you to hold on. The Bible says it's enough. It's not just that all the pain is gone, that all the hurt is gone. It's not just that we're gonna be reunited with, with friends that we've lost and those that we've loved. All that is true and all that is good. And John is saying what is better than even all that is that you're gonna be with Jesus. That is the pinnacle of every desire of every human heart. The Bible says it's enough. The Bible in all its wisdom and all its insight reveals something about the human heart and the human desire here in this passage. That the pinnacle, the peak of that desire is to see the beauty of Jesus face to face. That this is everything you've wanted, even if you didn't know it. So heavy is this desire that it is actually the motivation for everything that we do. It's been said that you are what you eat, meaning that you are what you consume. So willpower and discipline and hard work and all those things that motivate us to action are not actually motivators at all. They're just symptoms, right? Because what even lies beneath that motivation is this motivation that is birthed out of our desire for someone to look us in the face and tell us that we're all right. It's for someone to look us in the face and say that everything is going to turn out for our good. The desire to find some face that is telling me that I'm loved. And we have looked and looked and looked at a thousand different faces and all of them have failed. We're looking for that face that's telling us you're enough, that you're justified, that you're loved. Um, I was watching my kid, because that's what I do as a parent. Um, not, not to brag. Uh, but I was, I was kind of keeping an eye on my t uh, three-year-old and we were hanging out in the kitchen yesterday and um, I have a black lab named Bo and he loves to chase whatever you throw at him. And so Fuller picked up this baseball that was laying on the floor. Don't know why it was there. And he chucked it so hard at our glass door. And thankfully he doesn't throw that hard so it didn't break. But I got so mad at him. Like y'all irrationally mad at him. And I was just like, why did you throw that ball? Can't you understand that it's gonna break and then I'll have to pay for that? And he's three years old, so of course he doesn't understand that. Um, and I texted my wife and I was like, hey, I just yelled at our kid for a dumb reason. And she's like, yeah, he probably deserved it. She didn't say that. She was like, that's okay. Um, 
And so to disconnect from all this anger that I had at Fuller, I jumped on Instagram as I always do. And uh, this video, this like weird Instagram mom, it's like an ad popped up and she was just like, hey, just remember parents, you're doing great. And I was like, you don't know. <laughs> like, is that supposed to be comforting to me that somebody I don't know says to me through my phone screen that I'm doing great when I just yelled at my kid? Like I wanted to throw him in the trash can. I was so mad at him, I wasn't doing great. And I just thought in that moment, but man, I wish there was somebody that I loved that was telling me that. I wish there was somebody that I loved that I would listen to that was telling me that. Because I needed that. My kid probably needed it more than I did. This is what John is saying. We're gonna see Jesus face to face. And this rumble of panic that kind of lives under everything we do. When we're wondering, am I enough? Am I gonna be wanted? Does my wife still want me? Does my spouse still want me? Is anybody gonna wanna marry me at all? Do my friends still wanna be friends with me? This ever-present nagging, this ever-present panic that we just want to go away. So we throw ourselves at a million different hobbies. We throw on a show and just try to get away from it all. All the actions scripture is telling you are attempts to find the face of God because what you're looking for is for the only entity that has ever existed to tell you that you're enough. We throw ourselves into a million different things. G.K. Chesterton, the author said that the man that knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. This is what he was talking about. That there is a desire way deep down in our hearts to really see the face of God and to know that he won't turn away from us because we know the shame, we live under it, we live with it. We know that Jesus, that, God, that the Godhead has no business paying attention to us and we still long for that. And so sometimes even what we do is we take Christianity and try to make it fit that. We're lonely and we know that like you can kind of sometimes friends, you can find friends at church and so I'll just go to church and, and like, that'll be my community. And if I hear about God, that's great. I just want some friends. Or, I've, you know, I've tried the dating scene. I heard you can date Christians at church. Like, I'll go do that. Or I can you know, kind of check this box to make me feel a little better. This will make me good. Like, I can network while I'm there. There's a lot of things that church can offer us and we can still miss Jesus altogether because what we do as Christians, and y'all, I'm the chief of sinners among us, is that we can see Jesus and try to find him useful and we would never see him as beautiful. That Jesus can just be a means to an end. That view of heaven where like, we get to be reunited with folks who've died before us and we don't wanna hurt anymore, that's just kind of a means to an end. That's sort of using Jesus to get his stuff, but not necessarily him. And John is holding out for us. I'm telling you guys, this is what John's saying to us. I'm promising you that it's not enough. That you still just want to see the face of Jesus. The late Tim Keller makes this distinction that we, have, that we haven't found things to be beautiful about Christianity. We found things that are just useful about Christianity. It made me feel a little better about myself. Which I think like church is the worst place to come feel better about yourself because we tell you how sinful you are all the time. Like you're really, if that's why you're here, you're really bad at it. When I was in college, way back when, y'all, my college experience was the worst. I loved it and it was terrible. Um, I thought I had graduated. I thought I was done. And I found out I needed one upper English, upper level English credit. I had to go a whole semester, y'all, for three hours 
That's all I needed. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll go. Because um, I wanted it to be done. And there were only two classes that were offered. One was a Shakespeare class and one was a Tolkien class. And I was like, I've seen Romeo and Juliet, the Leonardo DiCaprio version. It's terrible. I don't want to take a class about that. And I've heard about Tolkien, so I guess I'll do that. Because I was a Christian. Christians talk about him a lot. Um, so I was like, I'll just take that class, I guess. And um, I get in there, and y'all, the Tolkien types were there. You know the type. <laughs> there were some Tolkien types in there. And, and they were just like sitting around talking about how great this was. And they're like, man, is it middle? Like, don't you just want to live in the Shire? And this girl would bake Limbus bread. And she's like, hey, this makes people strong. You should eat this. And I was like, this bread's terrible. And why are you, what, who are you? Like, don't take bread from strangers. And she, I was just in this class and they were talking about how great the Shire was and how, like, how beautiful Gandalf was. And I'm like, can we just get this over with? I went to the class, right? Did the papers. I got my B minus. I went on. And uh, I went to RUF, I was in RUF. I went to RUF after that. I was telling the campus minister, he's like, hey, where were you? I was like, I was coming back from, uh, I was coming back from my Tolkien class. And he's like, man, didn't you just want to live in the Shire after all that? <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to be anywhere else, buddy. Like, I, I don't, I'll live there if it gets me out of this class. I don't care. And um, it was probably two or three years later, I was in seminary and I was miserable. I don't know why I kept going to school. Um, and I was given this copy of this of On Fairy Stories by Tolkien. And I'm like reading through it and his description of Middle Earth and like why he puts all this stuff in there. And I started weeping. And I was like, man, I like can't get enough of this. So I rummaged through all my stuff and I found like my copy of the trilogy and I just started reading it. I would get out of class. I would get out of work. I would like run home and I'd start reading this book. I'd be like crying. I'm like, here's the ride of the road here. I'm like, all this crazy cool stuff that's happening. And I'm like, how have I never heard any of this before? It's because before... I was just kind of using this to get what I wanted. I was trying to escape this so I could get to reality. But now I'm escaping reality so I can get to this. It was no longer useful, it was now beautiful. And when we come to Christianity, John's telling us here, that's where we want you to get. That when you see Jesus, when you see him face to face, when you read about him in his word, when you experience him among his people, that he becomes beautiful in and of himself for no other reason than he is. And so when we look at heaven and all the benefits that are there and all those things that are great about it, John is saying heaven is heavenly because Jesus is there. That we will see his face, John says, and that's gonna be enough for you. All those questions that we say that we have when we get to heaven, I'm gonna ask this. They're all gonna go away because you're not gonna care anymore. The beatific vision held out in scripture and what we hope you leave with today is this renewed sense that Jesus is, as we pray every week, more beautiful and more believable than anything else. And that when you come in here, that you don't come in just for the community and all that's good. And you don't come in just for the good worship and all that's good or for the good preaching and that's good and because it's a fun building and all that's good but we want you to encounter the beauty of Jesus and that that would actually change you. Joseph says every week, he crafts the sermon in order to put us in the path of oncoming beauty. That we would be slapped right in the face with the beauty of Jesus. And that you would find the face of Jesus to be enough. 
And because we love him, and because of what is given to us, we begin to seek those other faces a little bit less. Until it's Jesus that we are actually longing for. Not for what it affords you, but simply because the face that you've been looking for is the face that's been looking for you all along. This brings us to our second point, the face that sought us. If we look at the second part of verse four, uh, verse four, it says this, that, we will see his, that they will see his face and his name will be upon their foreheads. If remember Elliot said at the onset of the series that every word in Revelation is a hyperlink to something in the Old Testament. That there's no new revelation in the book of Revelation. That everything that's in there has actually been said somewhere before. And so if you were to go to, to verse four, if you could, and were able to click the hyperlink, it would take you back to Ezekiel chapter nine, where all this madness is going on in the nation of Israel. And those who had the mark of God on their heads were spared from judgment. We see this in the Passover. We're about to take communion, right? That's an extension of the Passover meal. That when the blood of the lamb was spread over the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over you and you were free from judgment. And it would, judgment would land on those who weren't marked or set aside for God himself. So therefore you're saved if you have the mark of the blood of the lamb over you. And so when John writes this, this is a hyperlink back to everything in the Old Testament that says, if you are marked apart for Jesus, there's nothing that can touch you. When, the, when his name is on your forehead, that means you are safe from harm. It means you are safe from danger in an eternal sense. You're still gonna suffer, we all know that. But it's not gonna break you. And it's not gonna take us down. The Heidelberg Catechism that was written in the 1500s, the first question is what is your only comfort in life and in death? And those who drafted the catechism said this, my only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. When his name is written on your forehead, friends, this means that, that not only in heaven do we get Jesus, but Jesus gets us. And if I can be honest with you, it makes me feel a little weird because I know the sin that I've done. I know the shame that just lives around every corner that I walk. But there's this wonderful biblical truth that not only do you get Jesus, but that Jesus gets you. Elliot said last week that guilt is wrongdoing, but shame is wrong being, which must mean that here is the first time that we get to see Jesus face to face. Like beholding the actual Jesus with our actual face and he doesn't run away from you. That when we behold Jesus face to face, when Moses tried to do this back in Exodus, God told him, you can't do it because it'll kill you. You have become so pure by the blood of Jesus that you can now look him in the face and he won't turn away from you. That he has called us by name as he said in the book of Isaiah and that we are his Genesis 1 says that we are created in the image of God and the whole scripture uh, story tells us that God desires to dwell with man. He did it in the garden. We sinned, we got kicked out of the garden. Then we had his presence in the tabernacle during the wilderness. 
And then when they built the temple, God's presence filled the temple. And then Jesus tabernacled among us, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So now we have Jesus dwelling with his people. Then he's killed, he's resurrected, he ascended to heaven, and he tells us, I'm coming to live with you again. That is the promise of all of scripture, that we get Jesus and that Jesus gets us. That he is that in love with you. He's that crazy about you. And he says, the point of all this is that I will live with you again. The story that Jesus told about the man who found a treasure buried in a field and that that man went and sold everything he had just to buy the field so that he could have the treasure forever. Friends, that treasure is you. The problem is we went to youth camp that ruined this story for us and told us that if you love Jesus, you'll give everything away and that you'll follow him. And that's certainly true, but that's not what this story is saying. The story is saying that the man who bought the field was God himself because you were the treasure that was there. And so what he did is he laid aside his riches and his glory in heaven and he came to earth to buy you back. Because that's how much Jesus really loves the real you. Not the you that you want people to see, not the you that you think you are, but that he, di that he didn't die for the you that you want other people to see, he died for the real you. And that when the movie of our lives is played back for us on that judgment day, as Elliot talked about a couple weeks ago, that the, that the film, the game film that's gonna be played back, that's the story of our lives, it's just the story of our lives. It's gonna show every sin that we've had. It's gonna show every internet search that we've done, every shortcut we've taken, every hateful look we've had, every time we've been watched uh, The Golden Bachelor. All that time is gonna be played back for us. And the accuser is gonna look at that. Devil's gonna look at that and say, look, look at Daryl. He was full of it all along. He said he loved you, but look at all the stuff that he did. He said he loved his family, but look at all the times he wished they weren't around. The accuser's gonna come to you and say, look at all the stuff that he did. Look at all the stuff that she did. Look at what she did with that guy. She can't love you. And Jesus is gonna look at that and say, yes, all that's true, right? The, the movie, the film that's played back for us is just reflecting back to us what we've already done. And then Jesus looks at it and says, and even because it's true, I've covered every ounce of that sin with every ounce of my blood. I know that sin that they've done. I know a thousand more that you don't, accuser, and I don't remember them. I've chosen not to remember them. In fact, scripture says he has placed them as far as the east is from the west. And when all the evidence is there and that by every account we should be tossed out on our own, Jesus says, I died on the cross for you so you'll never have to know what that feels like. That when I stood on the, when I was, was hanging on the cross rather, and I cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you'll never have to know what that feels like. And then a poor man, Jesus, who couldn't even afford his own burial tomb was put in a friend's borrowed burial plot. And this resurrection power that raised him from the dead three days later and he's now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. We're told, Jesus says, I've bought you. Not only do we get Jesus, but Jesus gets us and he won't turn his face away from us. 
It's this terrible thought that Jesus knows everything we've ever done. And this wonderfully freeing truth that he doesn't run away from us. He knows everything about you and he doesn't run away. We've never known a love like that. That's why this is so hard. That we get God and God gets us. And as I read that, and as I desperately want that to be true, this prodigal suspicion kicks in and says, God, but, but what about now? Like, I know this future hope. What about now? Where's our last point, the fate of our suffering? How does this future hope inform our current reality? Let's consider the original audience here for the book of Revelation. A little biblical theology for us. This letter was written to, an actual, to actual churches that actually existed for them to hold on a little longer. That the revelation of Jesus through John is revealing to these church and saying, I know it feels like chaos. I know that Rome is coming in and killing all of you. I know that you're persecuted. But I want you to hold on because I haven't forgotten you. In the midst of our suffering, that is the hope that we have. That our suffering has a bottom, but God's grace does not. That when we're so lonely, we can't stand it. When we want just one normal friend, when we want peace, when we want relief, consider the Christian in Gaza, how does this reality convince them to hold on? Consider the Christian in Israel on October 10th, how does this convince them to hold on? Remember Nashville on March 27th, how does this convince us to hold on? How in the world am I supposed to go on after all this devastation has happened? It's right here. We will see Jesus face to face and we'll know it wasn't for nothing. We'll see Jesus face to face because he actually loves you. And while that is a future hope, he gives us this meal, this Passover meal, this communion meal that we're gonna to take together to say, I'm actually right here. That his presence is here. That his presence is here with his people. That his presence is in his preaching. His presence is in his word. His presence is in his singing. That he is actually here with us. And this is gonna hold us over until we get to that moment that we see him face to face. So we take this meal together so we can get it in our mouth and we can get it stuck in our teeth and it can be washed down our throat. That this presence of Jesus, these means of grace that are given to us to remind us to hold on for a little longer. That we are actually nourished through this meal. We're actually nourished through what we do together. That we come to church on a Sunday and find the grace to hold on for another week and then we come back again. Reminded of this Jesus who really does love us. It's holding on to the faith that what Jesus said is actually true. That's actually true. And we hold on in faith until we don't need faith anymore. Right, there's two places that faith is dead. One's in hell where faith is abandoned altogether. And one's in heaven where it's realized. We won't have to long in faith anymore because we'll actually have him. And he'll actually be looking at us. And we actually get to be with him forever. That the crucified, resurrected, and now glorified Jesus 
really does live within you. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you be so kind as to, in this next few minutes, uh, as we sing together, uh, as we sit in silence and contemplate and pray, uh, as we repent of the sins that we have done, um, how we repent of the things that we've left undone. Um, Lord, when we take this meal, would you actually let it do uh, what it intends to do? Allow it to nourish us. Allow it to open our eyes to the beauty that is before us uh, until that day that we do behold you face to face. Uh, And Jesus, we ask uh, that you would hasten the day of your return. That you, really, that you would come and get us, that you would come get us even now. Um, and if that's not your will, uh, that you would give us uh, the strength uh, to embolden us uh, to continue on uh, in faith until we can see you again. That's your name we do pray. Amen.